Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Hosea? Uh, that's where we're at, chapter 3. And uh, before we jump in, a uh, couple little things to share. Um, if you guys don't know who I am, uh, welcome. My name is Brian, one of the pastors. Um, so a couple things to kind of segue into before we jump into God's Word is uh, I had a handful of you guys ask me, you know, how I'm doing. kind of showed with you guys several months, about a month and a half ago. I think it was like towards the end of November. Um, some of the health issues or concerns I was having with regard to my throat. I had gone into the doctor, kind of found out that I have what's called a vocal cord granuloma. It's like a little bit of a growth that's on my vocal cords. And so when I raise my voice or talk, sometimes it begins to affect it. And so the doctor basically uh, recommended that I would take some time to let my voice rest, which basically, if you were here throughout the month of December, you know that I was, I was not teaching. We had a handful of other people teach, and for about, I don't know, five weeks or so, something like that, I didn't teach on a Sunday morning. So... Um, the hope was that when I went in for a re-examination towards the end of uh, uh, December, beginning of January, that that growth on my throat would actually shrink and, and go away, and which would have been uh, the, the desired outcome. And so I went in beginning of January, and the doctor examined it and basically had not really shrunk, and or not to the degree that he wanted or felt that it was maybe even had grown a little bit. So what that basically means uh, now for me is uh, he wants to remove it, so which means operation. Uh, beginning of February, I'm going to be going in for an operation. A couple of days prior to that, I'll go in for a, a pre-op. I have it checked out. So he will remove it at uh, the beginning of February. Um, then they will biopsy it. And the hope is is that uh, it's clean, and which means it's just a growth that sometimes grows. It's like a, he likened it to like a callus, especially if you speak, which is what I do with my life and been doing for the past 20 years, um, speak a lot and it can sometimes grow. And so if it is just simply a growth, then basically end of the road for me with the exception of about four to six weeks of um, healing, which means I will not be speaking beginning of February for about the next month and a half. So if it is more than just simply a growth, i.e. cancerous, um, then they'll want to, I don't know, go through another path of treatment, which, uh, quite frankly, um, I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like for me. Um, so I, I wanted to bring you guys into kind of where I'm at, what I'm going through right now, um, really just for a couple of reasons. One, to kind of tell you guys where we're kind of heading as a church. Um, obviously, me not being able to speak is going to impact to some degree uh, Sunday mornings, but hopefully in a really positive way, but also to just kind of bring you guys into how to pray. Um, ironically, we're actually going on 20 years of celebrating Calvary Slow as a, as a church this year uh, at the end of March, or I should say right after the week after uh, 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 Easter. So April um, is going to be our 20th year anniversary. So it's kind of a big marker year for us. Uh, my wife and I moved up here and we were both 23 years old. We uh, rented out an apartment right off of Pismo Street, downtown Slow. We started off a little Bible study in our house and it outgrew, and that was sort of like the little acorn that kind of led to this um, and beyond, three services and reaching the world and all sorts of amazing things that we've seen God do in and through this uh, church. And so, in short, what that means is the hope is is that this is not, you know, cancerous, and I'll keep going on and after uh, recovery. Um, if it is, then we'll take that as it comes. Uh, doctor said that there can oftentimes be, pretty, be a pretty high uh, treatment rate and curing, so on and so forth. But again, just the reality of like, what does that look like and how long? And um, because the reality is, it's my throat. It's not my, my my leg. If it was like you know something on my leg, and you know I can still be back up here talking with a messed up leg, but it's my throat. So, um, so what that means is 
uh, we, it's also going to impact the series that we've been going through in Hosea because we started Hosea, um, and once we started Hosea, I actually spent a good year and a half studying and preparing for Hosea. It's a really intense, thick book. There's lots of historical content that needed research, and so I spent a good year and a half just studying and preparing for that. So um, I didn't think it would be a, a, a nice trick for me to have uh, other people who don't necessarily work full-time as a pastor to carry on the study of Hosea. So we're actually going to not be studying the book of Hosea. We're going to be finishing the book of Hosea. Today's the last day, which we'll be taking a look at chapter 3, and we'll kind of conclude there. And then we're going to begin next week a new series through the book of Ephesians, which I've been excited about. It's been something I've been studying and preparing for for a good, I don't know, again, about a year and a half, wanting to go through the book of Ephesians. So I'm excited about that. And what that means as well is that we will actually be sort of assembling a teaching team, which I'll be selecting a handful of guys to be able to teach you guys uh, God's word on Sunday morning. Uh, for at least the next four to uh, probably closer to four to eight weeks, closer and let's just say eight weeks or so. So what a couple things I uh, want you guys to do. One, I want you to pray for me, all right? Um, just I throw that out to you guys to pray. Um, and a lot of you guys have been kind enough and gracious enough to ask, you know, how are you doing? And, uh, you know, to be quite frank with you, there are times when I feel great. I feel, you know, like God's got this whole thing under control. And there's other times um, I am sort of not great, you know, and I, I, I worry, I wonder, you know, my mind enters into this realm of what ifs, you know, what if this and what if that, and, you know, all of these things kind of become sort of challenging and difficult and so on and so forth. So you can pray that God would, would heal. I, I believe God can heal, and I would love, it'd be amazing if I went to that pre-op, uh, you know, checkup, and doctor looks at it, he's like, ain't nothing for me to operate, it's gone, like, That'd be amazing. I'd walk out, I'd celebrate, and take my wife out to someplace other than Chipotle, and uh, be really excited about that. Um, it, you know, so God could heal me, um, but he could also have a whole other pathway for me that does not include that as in the immediate, um, or at least in a miraculous, maybe more, more conventional, so on and so forth. So again, I don't want to let my mind go to all the what ifs. So one, just pray. Pray for my family. Pray for uh, the leaders of the church as we kind of uh, begin to kind of work through and navigate how this is going to play out in terms of us as a church. Second thing I would just say is the challenge is a lot for us as a, as a congregation because I, I realize there's a real tendency for us as a church. And I've had a lot of you guys, you know, very kind words or send me emails, many of them, um, just saying, you know, hey, how are you doing? You know, miss your teaching. We enjoy you teaching. And that's really flattering to me. I'm really thankful for that. And that means a lot to me. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the things that's really important for us as a church and important to me as a pastor is I don't want to build uh, this church. And I'm not really the one building it. We're just, along with a handful of other people, trying to give it back to King Jesus, who's the shepherd of this church, to let, lead it and shepherd it. I don't, I don't want to see a church built upon a personality. I, I, I think there's a real temptation and tendencies for people to select a church based upon the type of teacher or the teacher that's leading. And depending upon how good he is and how good they like him and whatnot, there's a tendency to kind of select churches like that. And so that means that when that pastor can't be there, he's not able to teach, there's a tendency to not really see it as a priority to want to be a part of the fellowship or to be involved in church or be a part of the family. And I, I think that's a really unhealthy thing. And what that kind of demonstrates to me is it reflects a lot of the values of the culture, which is really consumeristic. And I want to make sure, and I'm going to challenge all of us as a, as a family, as a church, that look at your heart. Make sure that it's not kind of slipping into more of a consumeristic thing that just sort of sees Sunday morning as a place where you can go and get something. I mean, Sunday mornings really is set up, I can reword it, as a place for you to get something. So it's a place for you to get God. 
we set it up like that. That's what we want Sunday mornings to be about. But don't look at it as just simply somebody that you can go and listen to and just consume from. Look at it as an opportunity of how can you maybe invest even more in Calvary Slow to give your life more to the people and the family members within this church, more to the mission of God. So that would be the challenge to you guys. So that being said, pray for me. Pray for the future of what we have going on with regard to different teachers coming in. Like I said, uh, I'll do the best that I can to find good, solid teachers that love Jesus, that proclaim the gospel, uh, and not just simply preaching content, but really uh, helping to shift and change and transform culture uh, in terms of how we see the world and how we view God in our lives, especially as we begin to jump into the book of uh, Ephesians. And, And just... Prayerfully, hopefully, um, God has something up his sleeve that we haven't really seen yet. So that's kind of that. So that's it. You know, I've had a lot of you guys uh, pray for me already. We've had a handful of people, elders, come up to the church and lay hands on me and pray for me in front of you guys. So I don't feel like we need to necessarily do that right now. You guys can just continue to pray for me silently in your heart. That's been great. Um, and then that's it. Sound good? You guys, you guys all good with that? All right. Good. Thanks. Jump into the book of Hosea chapter 3 is where we're at right now. Hosea chapter 3. Um, before we jump in, we've kind of been out of the book of Hosea for quite some time, so there's a lot of stuff I'm sure that we probably have forgotten or need to kind of be reminded. So what I'm going to do before we jump in, I'll give you a little bit of a hi- uh, history lesson or a little bit of a Israel's backstory. So the first slide, it just kind of kind of lay out in some sort of bullet points, um, some things that we'll jump through real quick as sort of all kind of preface to get, uh, get into the text. So uh, basically point out, these, point out these five things. So first of all, we've got to talk a little bit about Israel's history because Hosea actually plays into the long line or long lineage of Israel's history. So we've got to start with Israel. Like what is Israel all about? What's going on with regard to the historical context with regard to Israel? So Israel actually starts off in Pharaoh's brickyards. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. If you want to think of it this way, Pharaoh, this great uh, uh, autonomous, powerful being who is also recognized as sort of a tyrant uh, depiction of Pure tyranny, pure evil, pure wickedness incarnate. Um, in a lot of ways, he sort of depicts a bunch of you and I. Um, in other words, we don't ever get to the status of uh, Pharaoh, but in a lot of ways, we live our lives as like little miniature Pharaohs. We oppress others. We oftentimes, at least in our hearts, wish oppression upon other people. But Pharaoh is sort of this leader that has oppressed the people of Israel. Uh, he's forced the children of Israel within his labor camps uh, AKA his brickyards and the people of Israel were forced within these labor camps to work. And you would imagine under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, uh, the, the main outcome of Israel's life was nothing but anxiety. Work, 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 make, 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 build, build, build was really the theme song of the people of Israel's history under Pharaoh's domain. And so what God did is the people of Israel were crying out. They're crying out in their oppression. In the same way, slaves in the uh, history of America were crying out within their oppression. Yet, what we're told in the story of Exodus is that God actually heard those cries and God intervened. So the next thing kind of leads us into the story of uh, when God heard the people of Israel, he basically brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, we're told, with a mighty hand or a strong hand. And so there was a succession of plagues that uh, preempted the, what's called the Exodus, when the people of Israel were taken out of uh, Egypt, out from underneath the oppression of Pharaoh. And the final plague, the greatest plague, was typically called, does anybody guys remember what the great final plague was? Little history buffs out there. Anybody? You got to say it loud. You just got to be bold and say it. Say it loud. 
Good, but what's that called? Good, good, Passover. So the final plague, the great plague was called the Passover. And what happened was God basically had the angel of death go over the people of Israel and the firstborn of all uh, were slaughtered. And so this was sort of the great plague. And again, some of you might kind of hear that if you're especially unfamiliar with the story of Israel and why this had all happened. This was an ongoing succession of of Pharaoh hardening his heart. So the great final plague was uh, the slaughter of all these firstborn children. And so Finally, Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. The people of Israel came out of Egypt. You can remember the Red Sea was parted. They come out of Egypt, and several uh, days later, uh, they're actually brought to this area called the Sinai, which uh, most scholars describe as the Sinai pericope. So basically what happens is when God brings the people of Israel out of uh, Egypt into the Sinai, God shows up to Moses and says, Moses, uh, this uh, nation of people, they don't really know me. I know them because they are sons and daughters of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of, anybody? Abraham. So God's like, I know these people. They don't know me. They've been living under the oppression of Pharaoh. They've been living within uh, the, uh, the anxiety of, of Egypt and this tyrant. They are broken. They're destroyed. But I've rescued them. I want them to know me. I, w- I want to make them my nation. And so what happens within this uh, Sinai pericope is that uh, God gives, God delivers to Moses the Ten Commandments, or it's typically called the Torah. And then the people of Israel basically make this declaration to God. They're like, we will be your people. And all that you give us, we will do. Uh, in fact, in the Hebrew, it actually says, we will do all that you say. And this has kind of baffled a lot of the uh, scholars, because they're like, why would Israel agree to doing something to be God's people without even hearing what God has to say? Right? Because actually in the Hebrew, they're like, we'll do it. What is it? All right, most of us, when we like agree to something, we're like, I'll do it, but I need to know what it is first. Not the people of Israel. They're like, we'll do it. What is it, God? And a lot of scholars have kind of debated why is that the case. And again, if you understand a little bit about the brickyard or the labor camps of Pharaoh and the laws of Pharaoh, is that Pharaoh's theme was work, 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 never take a rest, constantly live under the weight and the oppression of anxiety and always be, do something and never have moments to rest. God brings the people of Israel out. One of the very first laws that God gives them is Sabbath rest. God has Sabbath to give. God has rest to give. Pharaoh in his empire has no Sabbath, no rest to give. We see sort of the theme kind of play out throughout the rest of the Bible. But what happens is God calls these his people. And so Deuteronomy chapter 26, I'll read the passage. Uh, Next slide says this. God actually kind of, uh, or through Moses, kind of uh, describes what's happening here. In a lot of ways, if you can think of it this way, think of an altar. Think of a a wedding. God's on one side. uh, Israel uh, as a nation is on the other side. And what's happening is this sort of exchange of vows. So verse 17 Uh, It says, this is what Israel said. So Israel has declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his commandments and will obey his voice. And then verse 18, it says, this is what the Lord has declared. So on the one hand, Israel has declared something. Israel says, we will walk with you. We will be your people. We will obey your words. We will covenant ourselves to you. Which in a lot of ways, anytime uh, someone is going to say, I will covenant myself to you, God, is also basically saying, I will turn my back on all the other lesser covenants I've made with pharaohs and Caesars and all these other false deities of the world. It's a breaking away. It's an exodus. 
See, a lot of us don't really understand that because some of the anxieties that we discover in our lives in this world have to do with the fact we want it both ways. We want to play out sort of the, the script of what does it look like to be a collector, to be somebody that has everything, that constantly works hard, that builds a life for myself, and be a Christian, go to heaven when I die, and walk with Jesus, and have life eternal. And oftentimes what we have is sort of this collective of ongoing anxieties, because we want it both ways. Jesus would put it this way, don't you know, you cannot serve God and mammon. That's why you're full of anxieties. So what Jesus' call is, is to break away from the brickyards, break away from the labor camps of constant anxiety, and turn to the king who offers you rest. So what happens is sort of this exchange of vows. Israel says, we'll be your people. Yahweh says, I will be your God. You will be my special treasured possession. Next thing is we kind of jump back into sort of the history of the people of Israel. Um, next slide goes on. It says this, uh, describes what I would describe as covenantal amnesia. So if you want to think of it this way, most of the Old Testament Bible, right? Some of you have ever read through like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and the book of Judges and, you know, the ongoing prophetic narratives of like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. Have you ever read through all that? And you're just like, what in the world is this all about? You're like, this is long, really long. And it seems sort of like a cul-de-sac, right? You're just going around and around and around and not really getting anywhere. Well, I would describe the entirety of all that as covenantal amnesia. What you see is an ongoing hundreds of year history of the people of Israel. God's covenant people. All right, that's, that's a parent, parenthetical statement. God's covenant people, the ones in the parentheses. God's people who have sworn their allegiance to God, constantly living or engaging in lifestyle that has nothing to do with Yahweh. In other words, to put it this way, the people of Israel, this nation, this holy, unique nation that was set apart by God for his purposes ends up acting like, looking like, every other nation around them. It's covenantal amnesia. I would suggest this. For example, have you ever met people that are Christians, call themselves Christians, and yet they live their lives just like everybody else? Their sexual ethic is just like what you'd watch on television. They're hooking up, having sex with everybody. There's no limits. They're, they're completely completely giving of, them, of themselves of their body sexually, totally promiscuous sexually, but totally, totally conservative with their money. Meaning, I don't want to give my money away, but I'll give my body away to everybody. What the gospel does, ironically, is completely creates a reversal so that when a person really is living under the authority that Yahweh's God, they become completely conservative with their body and completely generous with their person. They say, rather than me giving my body away to everybody, I'll give it away to one person, and I'll give my money away to everyone. But before you're a Christian, I'll give my body away to everybody, give my money away to no one. If you're a Christian, it's coming on amnesia. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten what type of person that God has called you to be. People of Israel have entered into this time and time again. I would suggest that this is really the history that oftentimes we find ourselves in, the place where we find ourselves in. You can think of it this way. It's this ongoing cycle of covenant making, covenant breaking, and covenant remaking. That's what's happening throughout people of Israel's history. 
They're constantly breaking this covenant God called them into, that God had made with them, and then God is, through a succession of events and circumstances and prophets, remaking with them, reminding them. Do you know, on that little subject, do you know that every single Sunday as we gather as a church family, we partake of communion. Do you know that communion basically is a reminder of the covenant? It's basically, it's a renewal of the, your wedding vows with King Jesus every single week. Let me, let me say this. This is one of the reasons why I would suggest you shouldn't miss church. Some of the reasons I think we tend to not think church is that valuable, that important, and something that we can just sort of come and go when we want, is because we, we fail to see the value, the importance, that we gather, not to just simply hear a sermon, but we gather as a means of regularly renewing our covenant vows that God has made with us, we again make with him. So we partake of the bread and the cup. We do it as a family. We do it together. It's a way of saying, God, this is what you've done for me, and this is... By grace, I want to give myself back again to you. Why do we need to do that? Well, I would suggest, because we're just like Israel. We live sort of within this script, this drama of this covenant-making God. We're the covenant-breaking people, and he's the covenant-remaking God. Bringing us back, drawing us back by grace. This is kindness that leads us back to repentance. It's a cycle, ongoing cycle. So that's what we see with the people of Israel. It's this sense of covenantal amnesia. Fourth thing is we see sort of this periodic moment of what I'll describe as these prophets who reimagine the way things could be. So on come the scene are these crazy, and I honestly mean it, like, like these are the crazy, artistic, freaky people that are really, really good at what they do, but they just don't fit in with society, right? I mean, they're sort of like the, the creative, artistic, hipster type. Right? Totally misunderstood by everybody. But they know exactly what they're trying to say, but everybody else misunderstands them. Right? Anybody met that person? Or you're like, I am that person. Nobody understands me. I'm always like journaling and drawing and nobody just, everybody just thinks I'm crazy. Well, look, uh, you're kind of in good company to some degree, maybe more or less with the prophets. Because the prophets were sort of these poetic type people. And one of the things that the poets or the prophets did is they came onto the scene and their job was to not just simply tell the people how messed up they are. That did happen. But the main job, if you look at the prophets, was to reimagine what life would be like if the people of Israel really were living within covenantal faithfulness with Yahweh. That was their job. Now, obviously, there came oftentimes stinging rebukes, like you guys aren't living within covenantal relationship, you're breaking God's covenant, you know, the rich are getting rich, the people of... Uh, strength and might and popularity. They're taking advantage of the weak. You guys are squandering your money. You're sinning. All of these other things. There are those moments of rebuke that the prophets would make. But for the most part, their job was to basically help the people of Israel to reimagine what life would be like if indeed Yahweh truly was Lord over their lives. What would it look like if you and I actually lived as if Yahweh was Lord of our lives? That's the question that we have to really wrestle with daily. Because I would suggest to you, we either enter into a regular, constant, ongoing covenantal amnesia or a willingness to just forget about the importance of that question. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, we can just use our money and squander it 
and little things and not really care about people that are hurting. Or one of the reasons why we can oftentimes harbor bitterness in our lives towards other people and feel really justified in hating on them or destroying them or wanting to ruin their lives is because I would suggest what's happened is we conveniently take God as our king, but the rest of our lives we live in such a way in which God really isn't our king. We live as if God is Lord, or we act as if God is Lord, but our lives actually live as if Pharaoh is Lord. And there's a harshness to us, because Pharaoh was not soft. Pharaoh was not the guy that you would go to when you had a hard time, and you want to tell him and share with him all of the challenges and hardships of the day that you had throughout the day making bricks. He has no sympathy to give to you. And the reason why we often have become harsh and critical is because we are being shaped into the functional God that we really truly worship, which is not Yahweh. And so the whole point of the prophets were to say, Israel, what would it look like for you to live as if Yahweh is God? To live in covenant fidelity to this God that you pledged yourself to one day at the altar in that big word, Deuteronomic text, Deuteronomy. When God says, I will be your God, and when you said, you will be my people. So the prophets are always bringing the people back. Prophets are always calling the people to turn back to God. Which brings us to Hosea. Which brings us to Hosea. Because Hosea is the prophet that we've been looking at over the past several months. We've been looking at Hosea. What does Hosea have to say? Hosea was a unique character. He was a prophet. His job, like I said, was to imagine what it would look like if Yahweh really was God. But to get there, he had to deal with some of the harsh realities that were actually happening. And what we're told in chapter 1, for example, people of Israel were given much. As a result of that, they flourished. They were a nation that had all sorts of be- blessings and benefits. And then what happened oftentimes, that there was all sorts of threats and challenges and financial issues that were beginning to take place. Crops were not producing food. You've got to think of it this way. Uh, the big money-making crops for the people of Israel were like uh, grapes and oil. So if you're the people of Israel and you are absolutely dependent upon a crop of grapes or a crop of uh, olives and there's nothing but blight and you have nothing but drought, you're in a financial crisis right now. And so the history of the people of Israel was one, get this, it's going to sound completely foreign to all of you, but the people of Israel's history was like this. When they were in seasons of great blessing, they forgot God. And when they were in seasons of great challenge and hardship, they blamed God. Can you believe that? Our lives are blessed. Everything's great. I have money in my pocket. Why do we need God? Let's not go to church. Let's not spend time with other people. Why do we need to do anything spiritual? Because look at all the blessings we have. Flip side of that, everything's going down the tubes. My health isn't doing so great. My family's broken. I don't have a job. I got demoted. I lost all these things. God, why do you hate me? I don't like you anymore. I'm going to go to church. I blame you, God, for everything that's happened. <laughs> is, is that not the story of our lives? That's totally the story of our lives. That was the story of Israel. Times of prosperity, they forgot God. Times of great challenge and hardship, they blamed God. And then comes chapter 2. Is a courtroom scene where Yahweh, God, husband, takes his wife to court and says, here's the problem I have with my wife. You've been unfaithful to me over and over and over again. Rather than committing yourself to me 
in times of blessing and in times of trial and tragedy, you have gone and thrown yourself in bed with all sorts of alternative lovers, and I want a divorce. Chapter 2 is this courtroom where God says it's over between us. You have given yourself sexually away too many times to where this relationship could ever even function or be healed, ever. And you see this succession of therefores, where God says, therefore I will cut off your crops. Therefore there will be no more rain, and it will not produce the grain and the wine and the oil. And therefore all of these things will happen. And then finally you get to this climactic therefore, where God finally says, therefore, and you're waiting on the edge, like what's God going to do? Is he going to cast them off to hell? Is he going to divorce them? Is he going to exile them? The final therefore, God says, therefore, I'm going to buy her some new clothes, a new ring. I'm going to wine her. I'm going to dine her. And I'm going to prove to her again, I love her. And you're left reading this story and the prophet is intending to cause our hearts to swell with imagination. What does it look like for a covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, to be faithful to faithless Israel. This love is shocking. But this is the love that God has for his people. This is the love that God has for you. Because, in reality, you and I, our history, even though in many ways different than the people of Israel's, we're not a nation. We're not under the reign, per se, of a physical, literal type of a Davidic king. There's a lot of distinctions between us and Israel, but there are some great similarities to the point where Paul, the apostle in Romans chapter 1, basically would draw this line and say, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are covenant people of God under the natural headship of Abraham or just part of creation under the headship of Adam, all of us have been given much by this great covenant-keeping God, and yet all of us squander the blessing he's given to us, and therefore all of us are deserving of being exiled, cast off, cut off. But God steps in and says, I won't do that. It's shocking. Chapter 3 enters in the story on the heels of a handful of accusations that Hosea makes, and I'll finish with this and we'll jump in the text. Next slide, it says a couple of ways in which Hosea says, here's the issue with Israel, is that Israel has broken covenant. They have been unfaithful. Even though they stood on the altar with God, and God has been nothing but good and ongoing and blessing, Israel has been unfaithful. And so Hosea 6, 7, he says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant and they have dealt faithlessly with me. Hosea 8, 1, one like, vulture, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Now think of it this way, a vulture was actually an unclean bird. The people of Israel had certain birds that are all cool and some, certain birds that were not okay. Um, vultures, and was, I, vulture to me is like one of the most horrible looking birds, all right? Uh, I live by uh, Laguna Lake, not too far from there, and there's all these trees, and a lot of times they kind of perch up on the top of these trees, and every once in a while I kind of see them circling around. And you know that whenever they circle around, there's death somewhere, and that's, that's the whole point with these birds. They're just nasty. They're dirty, filthy, ugly, grotesque birds, and they kind of epitomize death. And so God's like, want to know what type of people are overseeing my house, my temple? A bunch of vultures, people that are just focused on death and will die. Hosea chapter 10, because God says, because they've transgressed my covenant. They've been unfaithful. 
Hosea chapter 10, 4, it says this, they utter words of, with empty oaths and they make covenants. Hosea 12, 1, it says Ephraim pursues the east wind all day long and they make a covenant with Assyria. And so what God is basically implying here in this final verse, Hosea chapter 12, verse 1, these are all the times in which God implies that they have broken covenant, is to basically say um, what Hosea is, what the children of Israel have done is that they have actually turned away to other powers, superpowers. In this case, think of Assyria as being Assyria as the superpower of the day. And Israel needs protection. Israel needs help, right? Because at this particular point, Israel is in need financially. So, and they're in need uh, militarily. So what happens is Israel turns to a superpower nation that says, hey, could you provide for us financially? Could you extend coverage over us militarily? Could we find help and rest in you? And God says, because you've turned to Syria, what you're actually doing is you're turning and breaking covenant with me. Why? Because what God is actually saying all along, I have promised to protect you. I've promised to be the one to provide for you. I've promised to be your military might. I promise to do everything for you that you need. And yet, you have been unfaithful by turning away. And what Hosea says, very graphically, every single action on Israel's behalf to formulate covenants with all these other nations or false gods is equivalent to that of a prostitute getting in bed with another lover. It's graphic, it might offend some of you, but it is the text. It's the picture that God paints. And he says, this is the issue, what's happening. So that brings us now to chapter three. Because in this story, we see sort of a little bit of the story of uh, Hosea. What makes Hosea really unique is that Hosea as a prophet was actually called to a very specific task, not only to reimagine or think about what it would be like to be a nation under, Hosea, or under uh, Yahweh's reign again, but also to do so in a very graphic way, which meant that at the very beginning of chapter one, God actually calls Hosea to marry a prostitute. Now, I want you to think about that, because I think the whole point of that storyline is to draw us in to begin to feel the emotion of that. Really, what God is saying is, I want you, Hosea, to covenant, to commit your, your, your heart, your soul, and your body to somebody who will commit their, their heart and soul, and body to several other men regularly. It will be a compulsion. It will be something they won't be able to stop. And once they continue to commit their body, soul, and spirit to somebody else, I want you to continue to commit yourself to them over and over and over again. Don't ever become unfaithful to her. Don't ever stop loving her. Don't ever stop and turn away. Stay on path tracking her, loving her, devoting yourself to her over and over and over again. And some of us might read that and be like, that's shocking. It is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. You might think that's, that's, that's horrible. What a horrible thing to ask of anybody. To ask someone to commit themselves knowing that they will be nothing but betrayed over and over and over again. But what God is doing is he's saying, this is what it's like to love humans. The grief that you would imagine Hosea felt is the grief that you can bank on Yahweh feels. Yet, and there's the hopeful word of this whole thing, yet Yahweh, God, continues to love and to pursue you. That's shocking. That's shocking love. If we hear that, if we get that, that type 
of love, that description of love, should absolutely rock our world. That description is better than a football game that's going to be played this afternoon. That description is better than the fact that you might get a raise at some point in the future. That description of what God just described there is better than the fact that someday you might find yourself pregnant, having a child, or going to get married, or the announcement, or declaration of any great news. That declaration can change, transform your life. And it's worthwhile celebrating over and over and over again. Because that underscores everything our hearts desire more than anything else in this life. Everything else we try to get in the bed with and hope it will give us something back in return always leads to the same place. Defilement and the need for more. Isn't that true? You you cannot walk away from those relationships, no matter what they are, whether figurative or real, and say, I feel really clean and I feel really satisfied. You will always walk away and say, I feel defiled. I feel sick, grotesque, dirty, and need to be clean. But I need more. I need more. And that creates a cycle whereby you must find some form of amnesia to forget who you are, to forget what God has done, just to keep sanity. Hosea enters into the story to say, I want to present you an alternative way, a way that can change you, a way that involves great love, love that is radically unconventional. And what I mean by that is it's not the type of love that we see and we engage with in this world. Now, before I read, one final thing I want to say is that this chapter actually speaks about love. And what I want to do before I jump in and read it is I need to talk real fast about love. Because oftentimes when we talk about love in our culture, we are actually talking about an emotion, an affection, a sentimental uh, feeling that you and I oftentimes have and not the type of love that the Bible describes. And that's really important for us to understand because if you and I read into the Bible, especially in chapter 3, our definition of love, then you will actually misunderstand the type of love that's being described here. Most of what we describe as love is we say things like, you know, I feel so loved. You know, he bought me roses. Or, you know, uh, I feel so loved because you have this emotion or this kind of affection that you feel, this infatuation that you kind of feel. And what oftentimes happens is that if that becomes a definition that you have given yourself over to define what love is, at some point that affection, that emotion, that uh, feeling will actually wane and go away. And uh, kind of describe this a little bit first service, but the reality is, is that if you want to get yourself on a path of cynicism, like if, you know, in your mind, you're like, you know what? I met an old grumpy guy in Starbucks the other day. I'm going to be just like him. Like, here's the pathway. Set your, set your expectations on living for just an emotional feeling of love. Because you know what's going to happen? You're going to expect something from your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife that they cannot sustain. And when that little well dries up and you're not, feeling all warm and fuzzy inside anymore, you'll begin to feel cynical. I guess love can't be found. No one loves me. But the problem is, is that you've actually started with a false definition of love. So the love that Jose is going to talk about is radically different, and we'll talk about that as we jump in. So let's read, and we'll go through this quickly. One, chapter one, or chapter three, verse one, says this. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letha of barley. And then I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. And so you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be for you or be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel will then return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in the fear of the Lord into his goodness in the latter days. So we'll take a look at real quickly five ways in which God's love is radically unconventional, radically different, radically transformative for our lives. Take a look at this very quickly. One, first of all, it's a big word, big word. I didn't make it up. I'll tell you where it came from in a second. But the first thing I'll point out is that God's love is actually contraconditional. Next slide. It's contraconditional. Again, I didn't make this word up. So first of all, I'll point out here, verse one. It says, the Lord then said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man. And as it is, as she is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children. So think of it this way. Go again and love a woman. Dot, 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 go down as the Lord loves the children of Israel. So there's a, there's a parallelism going on here. There's a parallel. Uh, this adulterous woman is being compared to the children of Israel. And so the action that God is asking of Hosea is really the, is the action that God is already embodying. This type of love is radically different than the type of love that any of us ever know how. Because, put it this way, if you were in Hosea's shoes and someone came to you, and God, for example, came to you and says, I want you to go love and give yourself to your girlfriend, even though she's you know, slept with every single one of your good friends, and has no sense of remorse whatsoever over it. Go keep loving. Go keep devoting yourself to her over and over and over again. Most of us would probably do what is natural, which is be like, oh, that's, that's, that's crazy. Like, I, can't, I cannot give my heart over to what I know will be nothing but betrayal. But this is exactly what God says, I do, all day long, over and over and over again. This is exactly what's happening. This is what's described as contraconditional love. Next slide. This actually comes from a guy by the name of David Powelson. And uh, in his uh, little uh, treatise, he actually writes it up and he says this. He says, God's love is actually better than unconditional love. Because oftentimes we describe it as unconditional love. Meaning, there's no, no conditions for God to love us. And to some degree, that's true. Like, sometimes we say uh, what conditional love, for example, would be is, uh, an example would be to say, okay, the condition by which God will love me is if I get my life straightened up. In other words, if I stop downloading porn, then God will love me. If I start, you know, being a good husband, then my God will love me. If I stop, you know, spending exorbitant amounts of money on brand new shoes, then God will love me. If I stop, you know, purging my food, then God will love me. If I drop four dress sizes, then God will love me. That's conditional love. Unconditional love would say, God's love is not dependent upon whether or not you drop dress sizes, whether or not your face looks a little bit less chubby, whether or not you are strong, whether or not you've made money, whether or not, whatever. You get, you get the idea. That's, that's unconditional love. But contraconditional love, he says, uh, is different. He says, God does not accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. In other words, despite what you're doing right now, that is in contradistinction to God. Or to put it another way, whatever it is that you are doing in your life right now that is not congruent, not consistent with the nature and the character of God, he still loves you. But he loves you enough to change you. He goes on. 
He says, he loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. This love is much, much, much better than unconditional. We could call it contraconditional love. Contrary to my due, he loves me. And now I can begin to change. Not to earn love. Because I have love. That's the type of love that changes you. Do you know that if you're in a relationship with a condition for you to be loved by your boyfriend, for example, or your husband or your wife or your girlfriend, is, you know, my boyfriend will only love me if I'm skinny. But I'm not skinny, so therefore I'm never really sure if he loves me or not. Do you know that is slavery? You're not free. You are bound. You are stuck. Because you can never ultimately get to the place where you feel like you have performed enough to be accepted. Contraconditional love says, you will never get there. I know you will never get there, but I will accept you nonetheless, and I will love you enough to change you, to free you from the shackles that keep you bound. And that love begins to transform you. Second thing that we see about God's love is that it's contrasted with human love. So I want you to think of it this way. Uh, it says, Next, uh, this one right here. It says, the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods, and they love cakes of raisins. So the word that's used there, obviously, is the word love. Uh, it's contrasted. On the one hand, God's love, which gives himself to the children of Israel. We see done through the past with regard to the Exodus and regular, ongoing, recurring uh, examples of God's faithfulness. But then contrasted with Israel's love, which loves cakes of raisins. So you can think of it this way. The word cakes of raisins, you know, might imply something of just, you know, they, they love, you know, Fig Newtons. What's, what's wrong with that? Like, Fig Newtons are really good. Why, why is God all grumpy and angry that they love Fig Newtons? That doesn't seem to be a very kind God, right? So why is he so upset about that? So in reality, that, that's not what's happening. Um, the cakes of raisins, if you think of it this way, is Old Testament version of Viagra. You're like, what? Did he, did he just say that? It's the Old Testament version of Viagra. I just repeat it again. What cakes of raisins were is it was an aphrodisiac. It was believed to be an aphrodisiac. In other words, with the cult worship of these false gods, the whole idea was to bring about fertility. Not just fertility for a woman so she can have lots of babies, but also fertility for the land. Right? Because if you live off of cash crops, commodity, you need lots of grapes, you need lots of olives to be produced, which means you need fertile ground. So where do you get fertile ground? Yahweh says, you get it from me. I give you rain. But the people of Israel were constantly being swayed by the false worship of these false gods, Baal. And Baal said, you get it from offering sacrifices. You get it from these temple prostitutes. You get it from eating lots of cakes of raisins. So invest, invest, invest. Be anxious. Never be at rest. Never cease in your labor, in your work. Because you could never do enough to appease Baal before he gives you the rain that you so desperately need. So eat cakes of raisins. And God says, my people, they love cakes of raisins. They love this fertility worship more than they love me. But God says, in spite of that, I love them. That blows my mind. Because I think about the million things in my heart as a human being, that my heart is tempted to go after and cling to and hold on to. I've been challenged with that myself over the past several months. 
like I said earlier, I referred to, I've been doing this for 20 years. I love bringing God's word to you guys weekly. Sometimes I love it so much I go too long. Sometimes I love it so much I, I yell too loud. I love doing what I do. And I've been doing it for 20 years. I don't, I don't, I, I, I want to do this for another 20 years. I love it. I love it. But the question comes back to me is, do I love it more than I love God? That's a tough one to answer. That could be the source of sometimes why I find myself struggling with anxieties. Because what does that mean if I am not able to do this? What does that mean if my job is done and I can't preach again? I have no voice. I'm finished as a preacher. Can I still flourish? Can I still function? Do I still have an identity? Am I still centered? Do I still have a life? In the way of Pharaoh, the way of Caesar always says, no, you must have the goods I give for you to flourish. And if you don't have these goods, you will die. But Jesus comes along with an alternative kingdom and says, you won't die. Because if I'm your treasure, your treasure is eternal. I never die. Your treasure never perishes, because I never perish. It'll never wither. It'll never fade away. It'll never rust, mold, grow old, disintegrate, or lose its value. So the issue that we see here with regard to this is that it's a question of contrasting loves. Third thing is that it's committed to this cost. It's this radical cost to take care of and pick up the tab. And so what we see in Hosea chapter 3, 2, he says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of Letha, a barley. So the picture is, is that uh, within Israel's downward spiral to getting absorbed in all these other relationships, uh, Israel basically became a prostitute, basically became um, sex traffic. She was a slave. She's stuck. So the image, the picture is, is that Hosea is being asked by God to do something absolutely profound. Hosea is being asked by God, go to the pimp. Go to the john. Knock on the door. Have money in your hand and offer to buy her. Imagine Hosea showing up on the door. Yeah, what do you need? Looking for a nice thrill. No, I want her. She's horrible. Why do you want her? It's my wife. I want her back. That's all I have. Please take it. Half barrel of barley, take it. I want my wife back. That tramp? Are you kidding? You know how many men she's been with? Yeah, I want her back. This is the picture of God. He picks up cost. I want to suggest to you that love, true love, for to truly amount to anything is always costly, always costly. If you're a mom or a dad, you know this instinctively. Like, like if you're like, I love my children, they're newborn. Like part of loving your children as newborn is picking up after them. And oftentimes stuff you got to pick up after them smells bad and is nasty. But you, you literally don't have a problem with getting your hands dirty because that is the cost you're willing to pay. That's the tab you're willing to pick up to prove you love them. 
And I would suggest to you, every relationship has poopy diapers and trash all around them. Even the older you get, not literally, but metaphorically, there's all sorts of dirtiness and garbage and trash that goes along with any form of relationship. But true love says, I will get my hands dirty to show love to somebody who's hurt me, wronged me, wounded me, offended me, and I will change their trashy diaper or be willing to get my hands dirty to incur the cost to bring restoration. And this is the picture that we see Hosea saying, I will do, and that God says he will do. Some of the reasons why oftentimes our relationships flounder and are so shallow is because the moment there is any sign of trash or any scent or any hint of nastiness. We're like, I'm out of here. But love says, that's not what love does. Love is willing to pay the cost. Go through these quick ones real fast. Done. Fourth one is we see that it's cleansing and consecrating. So what we see in the story is that Hosea brings his wife back and says, I want to consent to a period of time where there's not going to be any sex. And it all. Not with me, not you, uh, not you with any other man. Uh, you will stay at home, and this is a time of cleansing, time of consecrating. It's a time, to some degree, of weaning your heart from those things that your heart had gone after. So this is God's way of saying, I want to reorient your heart back to a place where Israel's back set upon me. Last one, fifthly, and I'm done with this, is that God's love is covenant-keeping. And what we see in verse five is the question that really kind of is answered is how is God going to do this? How will God go about keeping his covenant of fidelity to the people of Israel that have constantly ongoing wronged him? And what he answers in verse five, he says, and afterward, the children of Israel shall return and they will seek the king, the Lord their God. And this is after a period of God saying they're not going to have a king. They're going to be disoriented. It's probably an allusion to the fact that they were sold off into slavery. They were in bondage. They were in exile. To some degree, God says, I'm going to send you apart. And God makes his promises. In the latter days, I'm going to give them a new king. Another king will rise up. He says, after the king of David. Uh, it says, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord to his goodness in the latter days. Now, finish with that. Hold your place there. Go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read you a passage of Matthew that finishes or goes into a larger passage in chapter 1 that most of us, when we get to in our reading of the Bible, we just simply skip over because it's a genealogy. How many of you guys like to read genealogies? I didn't think so. A couple of you that raise your hand, it's probably because you like reading encyclopedias and computer code. But the point of the matter is, is that most of us don't like reading these things because they're just tedious. But chapter 1, verse 1 starts off and says like this, in terms of telling us about who Jesus is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son, David. And throughout the remainder of the book, what we begin to see is that God has set in place a new king. The king. And just in case you're a little bit like, is that, are we sure, are we positive that Jesus is the king? The chapter actually goes on to describe how Jesus came onto the scene. He describes it like this. In the year of Tiberius, yada, yada, yada. There's a scenario where there's a census that went out and King Herod got a little bit freaked out and King Herod became threatened. So what King Herod does is he sets out and he wants to take the firstborn of every son. There's a slaughter. And in the midst of that, Mary and Joseph and young baby Jesus, go down to Egypt. This is Passover language all over again. It's God's way of saying, want to know how I've been faithful to sinful, rebellious people in the most profound way is by me sending my son into this world 
This is God's declaration to you. Listen carefully. This is God saying to you, I have not abandoned you in your shame, your defilement, your brokenness, your broken covenants. I had every right to exile you. I had every right to banish you. I, New Testament language, I had every right to cast you off from me for all eternity in outer darkness. But I've chosen to come to you to get my hands dirty, to show my love to you in a way that changes your lives. And to the degree that you see that and believe it and trust it, it will not only change your heart, but it will also change you as a human being and how you operate and orient yourself towards other people. Because you cannot be a recipient of that quality of love and forgiveness and remain hardened and cynical and unkind. You can't without remaining in covenantal amnesia. So the call of the gospel is a call to come to this covenant-keeping God and turn your hearts to him and let him change you. I'm going to have the team come on up and finish this song of worship. Let's see how I did my time. went a little bit over if you're a parent here, we really need to make sure that you pick up your kids no later within four minutes from now, okay? Last service, last service, I, I, I blew it. I'm, this is my confession of sin to you guys. Um, but moms, dads, if you've got kids back there, you really got to pick up your kids within the next five minutes. But I'm, I'm going to have, I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Why don't we all stand, and let's just let this song, we already sang this song earlier, but it's such a great song. I want us to sing it again um, to remind us of just, the covenant faithfulness of God and the opportunity for us to give our hearts fresh and new to this God. If you're here this morning and anything that's going on in your life you need prayer for, we, we, don't, we really believe that God wants to do great, miraculous, and mighty things in your lives. And we believe that oftentimes the way that God does that is by submitting our cares to others who can help carry those. Um, and maybe they, they're not, they don't have shoulders strong enough to carry them, but they can take them to the shoulders of Jesus who has the power to carry them. So if there's things going on in your life, there's sicknesses or ailments or heart issues that you're dealing with in life, or maybe you're not even a Christian, you want to you know this covenant-keeping God whom you have been keeping at a distance for a long time, they, they want to pray for you. So there's some people over off by the cross that are going to be there to pray for you. So let's sing, let's worship, partake of communion, let's offer our hearts to God by way of confession of sin, repenting, turning from those things that are wounding us, breaking us, to turn to the covenant-keeping God that actually offers us rest in exchange for the anxieties of Pharaoh's brickyard. That's where maybe some of your hearts are at now. God calls you to come out of that brickyard, come out of that labor camp, enter into a feast where there's a table spread and it's satisfying. God, thank you. I want to sing to you now.